I should also probably mention that my name's not technically Sean. What is it? It's Shang Xi. Shang? Yeah. You change your name from Shang to Sean? Alexa, search for fingerless gloves a la Tony Leung. Maggie Mae Fish, you're back! Oh, oh my god. Hi, Dave. Well, yeah, Jonah loves Shang-Chi so much that his head exploded, so I'm subbing in while they mop it up. It's gross. That makes sense. I also love this movie. Like when he was on the bus and kicked two guys in the face at once, and then that guy with a sword hand was like, uh, yeah. Enough of the chit-chat, Dave. Let's cut to the chase faster than that dude cut up that bus. Oh, okay. Shang-Chi was a great movie, not just because of the cool punches, but because it cleans up Marvel's history better than producer Kylie can scrub Jonah's brains off your studio walls. Maggie, this is too good. My head is buzzing. Well, hold on to your fucking hat, Dave, because actual Hong Kong cinema legends, real Chinese mythology, and an international team of fighting choreographers, this film retcons the Mandarin and all of Marvel Kung Fu history. Maggie, when I galaxy brain too early, my head. Oh, ew. Dave, you kaboomed. That's disgusting. Well, I guess I'll do the honors. This is Galaxy Brains, and today we're talking Chong Chi with cartoonist and Marvel visionary Jean Luen Yang. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, a podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's Jonah Ray, Maggie Mae Fish. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. <laughs> Today, our guest is cartoonist and writer of the Shang-Chi comics, Gene Luen Yang, and we are hopping on our mental mystical dragons for a ride through Marvel's latest release, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. But before we fly off into the great unknown, we need to have a nice long think. I'd say it's time for us to engage our logic brain. It should go without saying that nobody likes spoilers for Marvel movies. I know none of you want to hear about Ben Kingsley coming back or the cameos by all the guys from... Dave, oh. Dave, Dave. Yes? You have to warm them first. That's how this goes. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. So we're going to spoil Shang-Chi today. Please put down your phone. 
If you haven't seen the movie yet, go do some Pilates or plant a tree. Really, you can do whatever you want. Just be sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts today. Like right now. Great. Now we can talk about Bruce Banner and Captain Marvel's post-credit cameos. Yes, but Shang-Chi is so much more than just a vehicle for, hey, it's that guy. And other various unsubtle product placements. (laughs) It's also a movie. In that movie, we meet our titular hero parking cars in San Francisco. Except he goes by Sean. Sean is portrayed by actor Simu Liu, who you might remember from the beloved Canadian sitcom Kim's Convenience, is a fun guy who loves to have fun. What does Sean do for fun, Dave? Karaoke! One day we should do karaoke together, Maggie. I have a lovely singing voice. If you like pina coladas, getting caught in the rain. Okay, stop, Dave. I'm... For your sake, I'm going to stop. If you have half a brain. That's not nice to say if you have half a brain. But maybe he's nagging her into getting her to date him. That's a normal thing, Dave. That's 100% what it is. Uh, That was a great rendition, Dave. That's actually great. Sean's best friend is Katie, played by Aquafina. Their lives are full of aimless and drunken tomfoolery. And all that comes to a screeching halt when that cool bus fight happens and we find out Sean is actually Shang-Chi. The son of Win Wu, otherwise known to comics fans as the villainous Mandarin. Wait, whoa, whoa, okay, wait, wait. Wasn't the Mandarin Ben Kingsley in Iron Man 3? Yes, he's in this too. It's convoluted and hard to understand, so we won't waste our time on it here. But needless to say, this guy is a real deal Mandarin, and he's played by Hong Kong cinema legend Tony Leung. Win Wu wants to rescue his wife from imprisonment in a magical realm. Uh, and I should point out that his wife is dead. Like, very dead. Yes! Fully dead. So when we was going to burn down the village where his wife is from because he thinks her family is the one keeping her prisoner. Dave, I've seen this movie and I'm still not 100% sure where this is going. There's a demon trapped in a mountain that is brainwashing Win Wu. Shang-Chi has to save the village from his dad, defeat the big demon, and not scuff the fancy sneakers he wears the whole movie. That's the movie. We can't be leaving anything out, right? I'm leaving out a ton. Shang-Chi has a sister who runs an illegal fight club. Wong from Doctor Strange shows up. There's a cute little faceless monster, and the tin rings are very clearly going to come into play in the next phase of the MCU because they're sending out some kind of beacon. Maybe Silver Surfer is involved, Galactus. We have no clue yet, but we can try to make sense of this overstuffed movie in a segment we call Critical Brain. I feel like we've talked about Tony Leung so much already in this podcast. Why don't we talk about him? Because he steals the movie right out from underneath every other actor in this by just having so much gravitas and so much genuine emotion that he conveys Throughout this film, he's not just a bad guy. He's a complicated bad guy. He's a complicated bad guy. I mean, he really loves his wife. That's kind of what grounds his character is that though we're seeing him do terrible things throughout time, he really loves his his wife. You know, when we see them meet, the movie spends a lot of time setting up their relationship. Yeah, there's a whole kind of prologue that reminds me of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and other mystical Chinese cinema. And that is so different from the rest of the movie. (laughs) This is a movie that has a lot of tonal shifts, but it is, like we said, grounded by these performances. Tony Leung really makes Win Wu or the Mandarin come alive in these scenes. And like you said, he really loves his wife, but he's also an incredibly abusive father. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to our classic segment, 
Galaxy Dads. Galaxy Dads. Boy, bring your ass off up in here. I smelt your shit for 22 years. Now you can't smell mine for five minutes. So where does this character Win Wu fall on the Marvel bad dad spectrum? I don't think he's as evil as Star-Lord's dad. He's certainly not as evil as Thanos. But what would you give him on a scale of 1 to 10 as a father? You know, the Marvel has some pretty bad dads. So as bad as he is, again, he does like love his kids in a way. And I mean, I, I got to put him up as pretty bad. I'd give it about a, an 8, maybe. 10 being the worst. No, 10 is the best. <laughs> oh, 10's the best. This isn't golf rules. Okay, well then, to flip that around, I guess I would give him a three. He's pretty bad. He's a villain. He's an official bad guy. Right. He's going to burn down an entire village in the end of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, all bad. I guess, yeah, a three probably does it. There is, of course, the sequence of the flashback to when she dies. And then he goes on his revenge spree. With his son in tow. Yeah, yeah. Don't you think that seems like, uh, I don't know, child abuse? You know, I feel like he was just showing him uh, the harsh reality of being a big mob boss that's been alive for thousands of years. <laughs> so you think that this is uh, bring your bring your son to work day? Yeah. Hey, come on out here. I'll pack you a lunch. Maybe we'll go out for ice cream after. But in the meantime, I got to kill these guys. Uh, and Watch. Watch daddy do his work. Look at my magical rings. I don't think Lil Shang-Chi learned anything valuable in this moment other than my dad's a lunatic. That's a pretty valuable lesson. So at the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all could stand to learn that our dads are lunatics. But of course, at the end, you know, he does recognize that he's going to die. He's going to sacrifice himself and it gives his kid his 10 rings, which is pretty cool. It does in the end. Yeah. Yeah. My dad left me uh, all the sand that he collected from Saudi Arabia when he was in the Gulf War. So that was kind of like hitting the rings, right? And Dave's better for it. Right, Dave? I'm a happier person now. Yeah. We should talk about the first Mandarin in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's right. We're going to talk about Ben Kingsley. Oh, boy. We're going to talk about Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery. When an actor has inhabited a role as long as I have, he often becomes it and it him. The uh, doofus actor from Liverpool that has been, uh, I guess, kidnapped by Win Wu, the real Mandarin. David and I saw this together when when he came on screen. Whoa, I I didn't recognize what I was seeing for uh, for a couple of minutes. It took a while to click in. Yeah, you want to do a fugue state like in the movie Lost Highway. I did. You just turned into Balthazar Getty out of nowhere. I had to be a completely different person to accept this information, which might hurt me, which is that Ben Kingsley is playing the character again from Iron Man 3 in this movie. I thought he was a welcome addition to the movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He might have been, besides Tony Leung, the highlight of this film. I don't know why I love him playing this role so much. Ben Kingsley is a talented comedic actor. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't get a chance to stretch those muscles very much. So to get to do that here is really lovely and great. And he just brings kind of a... um, a <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to describe it. Just kind of like a... a, a absurdist 
energy to this movie. Yeah, like... Absolutely. I I didn't realize until afterwards that I was explaining to someone that Ben Kingsley is in this, and they were like, oh, it was like a cameo, right? And I was like, oh, no. He like... <laughs> He's in the whole second act of the movie. Yeah, the whole second half of the movie, which also I realized as Aquafina's character, she has a character arc where she kind of has to become more serious. Ben Kingsley kind of picks up the, the comic relief as her storyline gets a little more serious, so... Yeah, she has to learn how to shoot a bow and arrow. And then, of course, she is the one that kills the dragon. I don't want to spend too much time on Ben Kingsley and the the Mandarin stuff, but I do at the same time. So I'm of two minds about this, uh, in the same way that Marvel was of two minds about how to handle this character. Maggie, did you like Iron Man 3? I actually did rewatch it not too long ago, and I did not... I did not at all. My biggest complaint about it is that it felt disconnected. Yeah, it was it was very clear that they weren't sure how to handle this character that was rooted in quite a bit of sort of yellow peril stereotyping. So they just punted on it. There's like let, let's just not let's just not do that. And I love Shane Black. Let's 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 discuss Shane Black of it all in Iron Man three. I think he's great. I've loved most of his films. I'm a huge supporter of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which essentially saved Robert Downey Jr.'s career and was the the movie that probably, if I had to guess, convinced Marvel that he was able to play Tony Stark. So I, I think that goes a long way for me. But this movie never worked for me. It never worked for me. Iron Man 3 was like a lead brick. Yes, yeah. I didn't like all the convoluted histrionics about who's the bad guy. It didn't work. It wanted to be this grounded movie about Iron Man's trauma. But then it also had to be about this guy who turns into a big ball of fire. (laughs) I just didn't like it. I wish I did. And like you alluded to, a big reason why a lot of people didn't like this movie is because they made a mockery of the character, the Mandarin. And Trevor Slattery, played by Ben Kingsley, is an actor hired to portray a terrorist named the Mandarin. But that person was hired by Guy Pierce's character, who was actually the villain. And then he says, I'm the real Mandarin. And I'm just like, I don't know what the hell I'm watching. Figure it out before you come on stage, guys. Who are you? What's your motivation? Yeah, come on. This is this is uh, acting 101, for God's sake. 101. Who's the Mandarin? Raise your hand, for God's sake. <laughs> A lot of this was retconned, or the process of retconning it was started by a Marvel one-shot short film called All Hail the King, which was directed by Drew Pierce, who also was one of the writers of Iron Man 3. That kind of said, okay, there's a real Mandarin out there. We screwed up. Sorry. But this was the movie that finally turned the tide for this character and said, okay, we really messed up. It's It all is explained in this scene at a dinner table, and my eyes start to roll back into my head. Because I'm like, "What's what are we saying here? I don't understand. We're just kind of tossing this off. But they had to just toss it off. Because it was such a mistake. It's, the, I think, the one big failure of the Marvel Cinematic Universe Right. Like, how do you even explain it? Kind of just have to have your character, you know, explain it pretty quickly at a dinner table and they move on. Yeah. Short of like Tony Leung breaking the fourth wall and saying, so we fucked up really bad in this movie. And what we're going to do is just pretend it never happened. 
But they leaned into it. They really did lean into it with Ben Kingsley and all that stuff. Yeah. But the, the star of this movie is not Ben Kingsley. The real star of this movie is the action scenes. This is some of the best action I've ever seen in a Marvel movie. Absolutely. It's funny because, uh, you know, I... I was kind of looking forward to Black Widow because of all the hand-to-hand combat because, you know, she's the character that fights with her hands and then the movie had almost none of that. So I feel like this was this was what I was looking for. It was so cool to watch on screen. It was hand-to-hand combat. You could see everything being done. And that is one of the hallmarks of great martial arts cinema is you don't have the absurd, obtrusive cuts that you see in modern Hollywood action where it's just a blur of images. I think a lot of that is due to the existence of the Bourne identity. Interesting, Dave. Well, it's just like the Bourne identity came along and said, we don't have to be beholden to reality here. This is not a fantasy movie. It's a grounded spy film. But what we want to do is create the visceral terror of being in a real fistfight. And so that kind of choppy editing style made a lot of sense for that movie and communicating that idea. Most other movies don't need this. I want to see the stunt performers doing cool stuff. And so this movie really does show off the skills of all of these, the stunt performers, all of the actors, Simu Liu really pulls off just like the superhero poses in all of these moments. I must talk about the sequence on the side of the building. Uh. I was nervous the whole time. I can't imagine if I'm Aquafina's character uh, being able to do that. Oh, when she's running, I'm like, uh, uh, I I would be falling. And she's just a regular person in this whole scenario, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, in Marvel movies, there's always a regular person, right? And they always end up rising to the occasion. There's no true cowards in Marvel films. I'm sure someone will think of a character that is a pure coward in these movies at some point. Mm -hmm. And then I will finally see myself represented on screen. (laughs) Yes, at last, representation for me. The coward. But this is clearly, this film is going to be a huge part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe going forward. I think that's a fair prediction, yeah? Yeah, oh, definitely. Especially with the end credits scene, with um, where Marvel's heading with the next phase, if you will. You know, they got the big uh, Avengers to come in and, and talk about the Ten Rings in the end. Yeah, we got to see... Brie Larson as Captain Marvel one more time before her film comes out. We got to see Bruce Banner, Mark Ruffalo, because he's the one guy who doesn't have his own movie franchise. So he just will pop up no matter what. It's like, can we just get Ruffalo for this? It's in his contract. Okay, just get him out here. He filmed it in his closet and he's fine. (laughs) (laughs) His closet that's bigger than my apartment. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah, there's a lot on the line for this movie. And as of our recording, it is the number one movie in the country and the second biggest opening of 2021. So it seems as though this was a success, even during pandemic times when people are are not ready to go back to movies, to the theater at least. So we're going to see this guy again. And it seems like this was not just a way to advance the storyline of Marvel. It's more about The representation, as we talked about before, this was their moment to do their Asian-inspired 
movie. Third time's a charm. Yes. <laughs> yes, sure. Yeah. Yes. This is this is a movie that really embraces Chinese culture and Chinese mythology in a way that the Marvel movies have not done before. And, and this is a, considered a landmark film for Asian American representation in movies. If this movie is totally retconning Marvel's Asian representation and solved all of their problems, I do have one question, Dave. Um, explain the ancient one in Doctor Strange. If you can get Tilda Swinton, you get Tilda Swinton. Not good enough! Okay, look, I agree that Marvel has fumbled the ball a few times. Sports reference, drink! But Shang-Chi is a good faith attempt to address those issues. This is a movie that embraces Chinese mythology, as I said. It centers Chinese characters, and it humanizes the Mandarin in many ways. Clearly, Marvel learned the big lesson of Black Panther. If you engage with a segment of the audience and empower creatives to tell those stories honestly, you can succeed, both artistically and creatively. Marvel has perfected the art of cinematic representation without it coming off as shallow or performative. Dave, your ring is glowing. <laughs> oh, this thing? That's my old wedding ring. My ex-wife is calling. She says she's trapped inside the anthropology store at the mall. What? Yeah, w whenever she has a hard time finding her car in the parking garage, my wedding ring lights up. <laughs> I better go rescue her. Let me just go find my flying dragon. Whoa! Goodbye, Maggie. May the gods shine their favor down upon you. Also... Don't forget to validate. I didn't grab a validation ticket. It's okay. They'll replace it for you for a fee. Okay, thanks. Bye, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. It's 30 minutes free if you go to Cinnabon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. My ex-wife was parked on level four next to a Kia Sorento. Anyway, Shang-Chi redefined the MCU's depiction of Chinese culture, dusting off a lesser-known character and updating him for the 21st century. But that reclamation project didn't start in theaters. It began on the pages of Marvel's comic books. Making Shang-Chi into a character Asian-American fans could enjoy was a long process and one that our guest this week was intimately involved in. 
Gene Liu and Yang rebooted the Shang-Chi comic series with the critically acclaimed miniseries back in 2020 and is behind a new ongoing Shang-Chi series that dropped back in May. He's also the author of the 2007 Eisner Award-winning graphic novel American Born Chinese. Gene, it's a pleasure to have you on the show this week. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Maggie. Thanks for having me here. So this release has to be incredibly exciting, especially for Asian communities in America and across the world who have yet to see an Asian lead in a Marvel movie. We'll talk about the the modern Shang-Chi interpretation later, but first I want to talk about the origins of this character because I think for a lot of casual fans of Marvel, they weren't aware of the existence of this character. What were the origins of this character and why was it not a character that was in regular rotation in the Marvel Comics universe? Yeah, I mean, I began reading... Marvel Comics in the 1980s, back when I was in fifth grade, I bought my very first comic off of a spinner rack at my local bookstore. And back then, there were some Shang-Chi comics that were around. You know, I think his monthly series had recently ended at issue 125. So they were in like back issue bins. But, you know, as a, as a Chinese-American kid, I, I was going through this thing where I just didn't want to be Asian. So I actively avoided picking up those Shang-Chi. So I didn't know a ton about the character. I didn't read any Shang-Chi comics until I was an adult. But, you know, from doing research in order to do, in order to write the the ongoing Shang-Chi series, he began with not so awesome origins. Like in the original run, he was the son of Fu Manchu. My understanding was that Marvel wanted to do a comic based on Kung Fu, the television series, but were unable to acquire the license. So getting the Fu Manchu license was like the next best thing. And they created this character who was the son of Fu Manchu. But even then, I felt like in a lot of ways, if you read those early comics, there are really fun things about them. Like the way they do action is amazing. But then the character himself, like Shang-Chi himself, doesn't totally fit the Marvel mold. Like when you think of Marvel, at at least when I was a kid, one of the things that I loved the most about Marvel was that the characters were meant to be relatable. Like you got to see Spider-Man go to his local laundromat to do his laundry and you were meant to identify with him. But I just don't think those early Shang-Chi comics were structured that way. They weren't structured in a way where you were meant to identify with Shang-Chi. You were meant to identify with some of the other characters, his white allies, you know, but you weren't necessarily meant to identify with him. That's an interesting point because I think about Black Panther and it kind of played a similar role in the MCU to what Shang-Chi is playing now in that it's like, this is our big moment to kind of, you know, get representation out there on the screen. But the the Black Panther comic books were very unique in that period of the, of the Marvel Golden Age because he wasn't a Peter Parker, a kid who's trying to, to scrape by and, and, and make something of himself. This character of Black Panther is a king. You know, he's very regal. T'Challa is not like us. He's not relatable in that way. They found a way to make him relatable in the films, but it wasn't really quite as connected and grounded to the real world as some of the other Marvel comics. I'm interested to hear you say that about Shang-Chi is that it was maybe similar in that way and that it was, I wouldn't say othering because that seems like a negative word, but it's certainly different from how grounded the Marvel superheroes were. Yeah, that's right. I I think for T'Challa too, it took a while for them to kind of Marvelize him to make him fit into what makes Marvel unique. 
to build in those identification pieces. I want to drill down into Fu Manchu because for audience listeners who don't know what Fu Manchu was or the reason why it's offensive to a lot of Asian people, explain kind of what this character was and and what his place in uh, the popular culture was at that time. Fu Manchu is what we would recognize as the prototypical yellow peril villain now. And yellow peril villains were this trend in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Western media, portraying these Chinese characters, predominantly Chinese characters, as pretty inhuman. You know, like like Fu Manchu was a was a Chinese super genius who was bent on taking over the Western world. And even in his appearance, like he had bright yellow skin. He had really exaggerated facial features. He had pointed ears. This was like an early... Um, Asian stereotype that Asians had pointy ears. And I have no idea where this came from. Like, I've never met an Asian person with remotely pointy ears. But in any case, Fu Manchu starred in these early novels written by uh, an author named Sax Romer. And um, the way I, I see Fu Manchu now is I think of him as almost like a ghost. I mean, he's not actually a ghost in the stories. But if you think of like ghost stories, often ghost stories are about They're like a supernatural way of talking about people wrestling with their sins. You know what I mean? Like the ghost in a ghost story often represents is like an embodiment of the repercussions of sin. And Fu Manchu became really popular towards the end. Like I think he debuted late 1800s, early 1900s. It was right after what the the Chinese call their century of humiliation. So during the 1800s, China as a nation just went through hell like they lost war after war and one of the one of the big wars that they lost was the the, the opium war right against the british and the opium war was about britain fighting for their right to sell drugs to the Chinese populace, which the Chinese government didn't want. And and they were doing that in order to just even out a a trade deficit. So I think deep down inside, the Brits knew that this was a bad thing. (laughs) I think think deep down inside, they knew, right, they were sinning against this other nation. And in a lot of ways, the way I read Fu Manchu is he kind of represents the repercussions of Britain's actions towards the Chinese in the 1800s. And when Fu Manchu gets defeated in those early Fu Manchu stories, it's sort of like the Brits writing the story about how they're able to kind of put off the repercussions of their own sins. Yeah, that's funny, actually. We recently talked about Candyman, Dave and I, in a separate episode. And similarly, the idea of like it being a ghost. Gene, so you're personally responsible for revamping the origin story of Shang-Chi. I was wondering if you could talk us through how you approach this new story and what new details you added to the character's backstory. Yeah, it's it's been a ton of fun to work on. I've gotten to work with some amazing artists. DK Ruan and I are are now doing the uh, monthly ongoing series for the limited series that came out about a year ago. DK did part of the art and Philip Tan did another part. The whole thing's being edited by Darren Shan, who's amazing editor with amazing instincts. Early on, we we all talked about Shang-Chi and we're all of Chinese descent. And we talked about what this character meant to us. And all of us had that weird relationship that I talked about earlier, right? Where we didn't fully embrace Shang-Chi as kids when we were, we were reading comics as kids. So ultimately what we wanted to do was we wanted to really bring in more Marvel into this character. We wanted to make him more of a character that we could all relate to, right? Regardless of 
our readers' cultural background. We wanted them to be able to relate to Shang-Chi. And the Marvel Universe is different from DC. Like with DC, you sometimes have these hard resets of the entire universe, right? It happened with uh, Crisis of Infinite Earths in the 80s, and it's happened again more recently with New 52. But Marvel's never gone through something like that. Marvel's never had a hard reset. So it means that all the stuff in the Marvel past, like the Marvel history, is still in play, which means that all the problematic pieces of of Shang-Chi, we have to kind of figure out how to talk about that stuff without doing a hard reset. We kept the fact that Shang-Chi's dad is a supervillain. He's no longer Fu Manchu, but he's the supervillain. We tried to make his supervillainy more sympathetic, but we we wanted to lean into family drama. Everybody can relate to family drama, right? So we, we wanted to lean into the tension between him and his dad. And we also wanted to give him a bunch of siblings that he could both support and squabble with. That is, I think, probably the most unifying aspect of the Marvel Universe, both on the page and on the screen, is that family dynamic and the idea of squabbling and the idea of how are you going to improve upon your parents or how are you going to overcome the obstacles presented by your parents? There's just so much that is there in these stories. Was that something that when you were reading the comics as a kid, you related to, or was it something that was more just like subtext that you got later on when you grew up? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was, I I don't know if I would have been able to articulate it as a kid, but that was definitely something that I was drawn to. I mean, my favorite Marvel book when I was little, when I was like in elementary school was Fantastic Four. And that whole family dynamic, right, was, was totally a part of that. The whole thing was about how, these people love each other, but kind of hate each other sometimes too. You know what I mean? Like, and and that's <laughs> almost all of us who who we feel that way about our families. We love them, but sometimes, you know, sometimes maybe not. There's a big plot point in your your comics about the spirit of Shang-Chi's father and a, a Jian Shi, which is a, a vampiric ghost-like creature from Chinese mythology and folklore. I'm wondering what other elements of Chinese mythology that you worked into these comics, and, and why did you choose to tie in those specific characters, creatures, and themes? I think the big thing is I'm interested. You know, in, in a lot of ways, all of the work that I've done in comics has been about connecting with my own cultural heritage. You know, I, I was born and raised in the United States. So I really only knew about Chinese culture through my parents. I remember visiting China for the very first time as an adult when I was in my 20s. And it was just weird. It was like, it was like seeing all this stuff for the first time that I had only known through echoes. So in a lot of ways, my work on Shang-Chi is like trying to figure out all of this stuff. It's kind of like a selfish reason, right? But I, I just wanna I wanna figure out these parts of myself. So one of the big pieces that we use from traditional Chinese cultures, this idea from traditional Chinese medicine called the five elements. And you know how like there are four elements in Western culture. It's like air, water, earth, and and fire. In Chinese culture, there are five elements: it's fire, earth, metal, water, and wood. And what we did was we had Shang-Chi come from, like his family is essentially, they run this, this organization called the Five Weapons Society. And the five weapons of the Five Weapons Society correlate with the five elements of traditional Chinese medicine. I want to pivot to the movie 
because I want to know what you thought about it. This is, it's got to be a really amazing feeling to sit down in a theater and watch this thing that you've been intimately involved with for so long come to life. So what, what was that experience like? Did you go to a theater? Did you try to make it an event for yourself? What was it like to, to sit down and, and see this film? It was amazing. I went on Friday. I went with a friend of mine who is also a cartoonist, a guy named Tin Pham. And we went, sat in that theater for the whole two hours. Like when I watched the trailer after it dropped a few months ago, I had this feeling, right? It was like this, I don't even know how to describe it. But but basically that movie was that same feeling, but for two hours. <laughs> it was uh, it was amazing. It, all the expectations that I had going in were exceeded. And my friend put it best. So Tin is like this total comic book. Like he's just like the prototypical nerd. And what he said before we went into the movie was like, he said, if this is good, I'm going to go buy all the action figures. <laughs> and the first thing he did after we exited the theaters, he went to the GameStop and bought all the action figures. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I can think back to how I felt seeing Black Panther and how a lot of people of, of African descent felt seeing that for the first time. And, and it was like, oh my God, I can't believe they made this thing. And I have to go out and buy all the toys. I have to buy them all for my son. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think that this is a watershed moment in the same way that Black Panther was kind of a watershed moment for Black audiences? Will that be true for Asian American audiences or Asian audiences across the diaspora? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I definitely hope so. I, I hope it's part of a larger trend, right? Like we saw some of it with Crazy Rich Asians, with To All the Boys that I've loved before on uh, on Netflix. But I'm hoping this is a, a part of something much bigger. I, I think one of the things that Asian Americans struggle with is getting non-Asians to see us as individuals. The stereotype that dates back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's found in a lot of early American comics is that we're just part of this big horde, this big faceless horde. And I think one of the things that really thrilled me about Shang-Chi is you saw these very distinctive individuals. Shang-Chi was a distinctive individual. Katie was a distinctive individual. They were all drawn as three-dimensional people. So my hope is that that will continue, you know, that and, and that'll bleed into real life too, right? Like that, like when when people meet an Asian American, they will assume they'll have this underlying subconscious assumption that they're a three-dimensional human being. <laughs> yeah, pop culture is the most powerful tool we have in our culture to change people's minds. And I know some people might scoff at these kinds of things, but it is important. And it's there's a reason why people are fighting for it. And there's a reason why it matters to those of us who are in parts of uh, marginalized communities is because these things have not been happening and they need to happen for people to see the world a little bit differently. So I'm sitting here pining over the idea of Henry Golding as James Bond. And we need to make it happen. <laughs> Let's do it. Oh, Dave, don't promise me things <laughs> I can't have. Uh, one last question for you, Gene. In addition to your writing, your comics writing, uh, you are a teacher in the Bay Area. And you've merged these two careers with an online comic book for teaching math called Factoring with Mr. Yang and Mosley the Alien. How effective do you find comic books to be as teaching tools? Because, you know, as I just said, 
to me, pop culture is that thing. It's that thing that gets people to reimagine and recontextualize their world. So how effective do you think it is to do that through the medium of comic books? Yeah, I think comics are an amazing tool for education. I was a high school teacher for 17 years at a high school in Oakland, and I also got my master's in education. So for my final master's project, I did that. I did that online interactive comic teaching factoring, which is this topic from Algebra 2. Oh boy, don't don't make me remember Algebra 2. I'm breaking out in hives as we speak. <laughs> You're breaking out in hives because your teacher didn't use comics to teach you. Exactly. Yes, if my teachers had found the fun in factoring and algebra, maybe I would be a, a mathematician today instead of a podcast host. Exactly. But I think like for a really long time in America, the educational establishment avoided comics. There was this book that came out called Seduction of the Innocent in the 1950s that argued that comics caused juvenile delinquency. So even though that book was wrong, it had a huge cultural impact. (laughs) (laughs) And and educators just avoided comics for for decades. And that's changed recently, right? But in my research for my master's program, what I found was that like out of all of the visual storytelling media, like film and television and animation, out of all of it, comics is the only one where it puts control over time in the hands of the reader. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like a film, it goes at a certain pace and that's it. But a comic can go or as fast or as slow in the reader's mind as the reader desires. And for, for education, that is an incredibly effective tool. And I think that's one of the the most powerful things about comics, right? Like there's no other visual media that allows you to do that. It's only comics. That's an amazing point that I have honestly never thought of. (laughs) That is really, really astute. And I will have to start trying to teach my son um, basic manners through comic books (laughs) because he hasn't learned those yet. Gene, thank you so much for joining us. This was an incredibly illuminating conversation. I'm looking forward to reading more Shang-Chi comic books in the very near future. Thank you. Thank you both. It was wonderful to talk to you. Each week, we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Hey, here's one now. So I I literally just got back from the theaters. We were going to go see Space Jam, obviously, but it was sold out. So we saw the escape room, Tournament of Champions. And, you know, as much as I wanted to see Space Jam, I know in either situation, I, I still saved myself half an hour because escape room is, is half an hour shorter. And either way, you know, it's half an hour saved. I'll give them. <laughs> so you saved half an hour. This brings up an interesting question, which is how long should a movie be? Shang-Chi was a very long movie. It was like about two hours, maybe two hours and five minutes, something like that. I think it could have been a bit shorter. I think it could have been a bit tauter. What did you think? You know, I'm a person that could sit and watch a five-hour movie, and I would hardly move, Dave. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I guess movie length, I'm not one that feels like movies need to be short. And But I agree. This, I felt like it could have shaved off a few Ben Kingsley lines. Yeah. Did you see Escape Room Tournament of Champions? I didn't, but I'm aware of the series, and I'm actually really surprised and impressed that they made a sequel. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat. I saw the trailer, and I was like, oh, this is kind of a fun idea. It doesn't make any logical sense how these people are constantly <laughs> stumbling into escape rooms. Like, 
Oh, I'm just making breakfast. Oh, shit, it's an escape room. How did I? I guess I was kidnapped in the middle of the night. Hey. Somebody somebody built this giant facility for us to do escape rooms in. But yeah, I haven't seen it. That said, I'm glad that you, a caller, got to see it and that you saved 30 minutes of your life. I hope you didn't eat a hot dog because what I read is that hot dogs take 30 minutes off of your life. Right. That would be, that would exit out. If you got a hot dog during escape room tournament of champions, it really evens out, doesn't it? Oh. If you want to call in and get dietary advice from me and our co-hosts, we'd love to hear your galaxy brain take on next week's episode topic, the gritty apocalyptic adaptation of Why the Last Man. Or you can call in to suggest ways I can fix the hitch in my golf swing. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We might even read one of them on the air, like this one. Here's a, a wonderful review from Geft99. He says, title, great podcast. I agree. I really enjoy the breakdowns of the movies in this podcast. Dave and Jonah keep it funny and entertaining as well. Keep up the great work. We will, Geft99. Thank you for your support. This is going to go a long way towards preventing us from getting canceled. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Oh boy, next week you're in for a real treat. They're going back to two male hosts to cover Why the Last Man. That seems like bad timing. Don't worry. Our guest is writer, comedian, journalist, and host of the Bechdel cast, Jamie Loftus. Oh, thank God. I'm sure she'll put us in her place. That's great. Well, Dave, I'm sad to be leaving you, but it's time I shuffle off to Buffalo. Hey, uh, can you maybe, like, read those credits again? <laughs> you know, for old time's sake. Of course. It's the least I can do for a friend. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautham Shrikishin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant and Russ Freshdick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Malnizik who helped create the show. Until next time, Jonah's head explodes, I'm Maggie. And until next week, I'm Dave. Take us home, Aquafina. Take me home. Country Road. <laughs> <laughs> Did Aquafina ever record that song? All right. My veg, like an operatic ballad. Yo veg, like grandpa's cabbage. And my veg, effortless. Yo veg, post ads on Craigslist. My veg, score aloe vera. Yo veg, look like Tony Danza. My veg, like tasting heaven. Yo veg, manages a 7 alert. Yo, my veg, make your girl panties cream. Yo veg, spreads hepatitis C. And my veg, a chrome Range Rover. Yo veg, hatchback 81 Toyota. Yo, my veg. Harvard Law School, yo veg. 